Good morning and welcome to the National Capital Bible Church, our Memorial Day service. Not really a sunrise service, but a little earlier than uh, the normal. So welcome. We're glad you're here. For those who walk in the flesh, <clears throat> for those who walk in the flesh, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but mighty in God, for casting down arguments, for pulling down strongholds, and everything that exalts itself against the, ar- the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? This morning, as we prepare for our Memorial Day service, we have a few seconds for spiritual preparation and also for your preparation for the part of worship that is giving. We know that as each one of you purposes in his heart, so that individual should give, not of compulsion or to give reluctantly, for the Lord loves what the Bible calls a cheerful giver, someone who has a positive attitude towards the Lord. And so we give out of love, not out of any other motivation. And so this morning as we prepare again for our worship service, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we have the opportunity in this nation to celebrate and remember Memorial Day. Help us, Father, as we go to the Word of God, that we'll have an understanding of what memory and remembering and really not forgetting uh, entails. We're thankful also for our opportunity to give, Father. Help us to realize that we are simply responding in love to all of the wonderful things that you have done to us, done for us, and Father, truly responding to your love. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Therefore, open the word of God for our class this morning in Hebrews chapter 11. The book of Hebrews chapter 11. And our scripture reading will begin at verse 13. Notice the these, the demonstrative there, is referring back to, the, uh, of course, the great heroes of faith uh, that this chapter uh, cites. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And if, in, and indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for our freedom that we enjoy here in the United States of America. We thank you for those of, that are fallen uh, to protect our freedom, the freedom to worship you in a public place such as this. We ask now once again that God the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, would be with our pastor now as he comes forth to teach us your word. We ask these things, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Again, welcome to our Memorial Day service. And Memorial Day routinely falls on Monday, and we have it tomorrow. So it's always wonderful to have uh, the opportunity on the Sunday just prior to that to celebrate Memorial Day. And I think it's important for us to celebrate Memorial Day. I would like to begin by thanking Kathy Haley, who I believe... Today is up in Rhode Island visiting her grandchild. But I'd like to thank her for the uh, folder that we have, the little bulletin that we have for Memorial Day today. And I think you'll find that 
Today we have honored Colonel Robert L. Howard, and I will speak more of him later. I'd also like to thank Tony Houston for doing an absolutely remarkable job with our poppies. And poppies are used also on Veterans Day, but they are uniquely special to Memorial Day, and I'll mention that again later as well. Our passage this morning comes from Hebrews 13, 11 through 16. And a little of the, the context. It's always important to have the context of our scripture. And it's the book of Hebrews, of course. And it's written to Jews who had converted, who had converted to Christianity, which uh, we confidently know is uh, what the background of the book is. Unfortunately, we're not real sure who the author is. We also have a difficult time knowing exactly when the book was written, although we believe it was in the early 60s to mid-60s A.D. So we can just nail that down around 63 A.D. So uh, these believers had been taught by an apostle. I believe it was an apostle because he then writes the book of Hebrews. So he has that gift. And we believe that the book was addressed to those in Israel, probably in and around Jerusalem. Now, there are other thoughts that it might have been uh, some other location. But because of the focus or the emphasis on Levitical offerings and functions that would have occurred in and around the temple, we believe that, or at least one very strong view, is that this is a reference to believers who are in and around Jerusalem at the time. And that works very nicely with the theme of the book. The recipients of the book are encouraged. This is a book of encouragement. They are encouraged to remain in the, the profession of their faith. They are not to cave in to the peer pressure and social pressure by renouncing their faith. The believers that were that were the recipients of the book are told of a future inheritance, the word promise. They're told of a future inheritance that would be theirs if they didn't revert to the old covenant, the Mosaic law. In chapter 11, as we progress through the book, we arrive at chapter 11. And in chapter 11, the author, whom, again, we don't know, amazing the things that we don't know about the book of Hebrews, and it's also amazing the amount of effort that's spent by many people trying to determine who wrote it, when they wrote it, from whence he wrote it, where it was going, and the Bible simply doesn't tell us. And when the Bible doesn't tell us, very often it's probably worth our while to just leave it in the unknown category. But the author tells his readers uh, of those in the Old Testament. He's talking about sometimes what we call the Old Testament heroes. And he's talking about those who had died in faith, not having received the promise, not having received the inheritance. Who were those? He talks about Abraham. That's Probably one of the best places to start if we're looking for an illustration. He talks about Abraham who had been given the promises of the land, an offspring, and also a blessing. And so he talks about them and they had not received their inheritance, the blessing. And he's referring specifically in the book of Hebrews to the millennial kingdom. That was what Jews, Israel had anticipated down through their history, this millennial kingdom, the return of the, um, the monarchy, we would say, and the uh, pleasures that they had in the Davidic kingdom. But these Old Testament believers had lived according to what they had believed. And now, at the end of their lives, the promises were not being fulfilled. However they continued to be faithful. So we read 
verse 13 is really the one that's pertinent to us. These all died, and the, word, and the translation to there probably is according to faith. They all died according to their faith. They still believed, even though they had not received, not having received the promises, the inheritance, but having seen them, having perceived them. The word see here very often means to perceive. They knew of them and they perceived them. And it says afar off in the future. But they were assured of them. They embraced them. And the word here for embrace means to welcome. It also has the, it's, all, it's the verb that is used for saluting. So having saluted them, respected them, welcomed them, anticipated them, and confessed, our word, same word that we find in 1 John 1, 9, having acknowledged them, might be a better word here, having acknowledged them, uh, having and confessed that they having confessed or acknowledged that they are strangers and pilgrims. The word for pilgrims, sojourners, or someone who resides alongside someone else on earth. And so, the writer here says that the experiences of these godly men and women of the past, which are in fact outlined as an example for others, or if we make this more personal, we can say outlined for us. And they're there so that as we pass through the years of our own pilgrimage on earth, we are citizens of this nation, but we're also citizens of heaven. And we reside in Satan's world. But we really are children of the Lord, children of the King, belonging to another kingdom. So as we reside on this earth, we pass through our own pilgrimage here on earth. And these believers were living and dying with the hope, with the anticipation of a better life and world, but they had not lived to see it. They had not fulfilled that. They died according to their faith, which means that they truly believed in what they were doing. They believed the promises. They believed that inheritance. They believed that there was a better life in the future, a better life coming, and they lived their lives in earnest anticipation of that better life. These people described in Hebrews, and I've given you an example, one of Abraham. We could also use Sarah, his wife, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, and we could go through a list. But they died before taking possession of the promises which had originally been given to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant of this future blessing. But nevertheless, they endured in faith even to the end of their lives. And then we're told in Hebrews 12.1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Hebrews 12.1, after describing all of these heroes, if we'd like to describe them that way, who had kept the faith, who had lived their lives according to faith, we're told, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, in other words, those who have lived their lives as a legal testimony. Remember, we've studied the word witness, and it means someone who can give a legal testimony. But they've lived their lives as witnesses. It says, since we are surrounded by them, we must lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And we must run with endurance the race that is set before us. In other words, live our lives according to that same faith. We are to live our lives without breaking faith with them. We are not to break faith with them. And I think if I had to give a title for the message this morning, I would say that that's what Memorial Day is. We are not to break faith with those who have lived their lives in the, the, uh, the freedom and liberty of this nation. But they died in the pursuit of that faith. And so the analogy we have this morning, and while the analogy is not exact, I think that we can apply this 
on Memorial Day, we have a group of men and women who were dedicated to a cause, dedicated to what they believed, the freedom and the liberty of this great nation, and often in the interest of other nations as well. And they gave their lives according to the faith. They gave their lives according to the faith, that which they believed. They had a faith in a great cause, but they would not live to see the end for which they gave their lives. Once a year on Memorial Day, we remember in a special way those who gave their lives, those who died in defense of our, of our own nation and the liberty which we hold so dear. Veterans Day remembers all those who have served. But Memorial Day is for those who have given their lives. And I think this is the true purpose of Memorial Day. Sometimes it's forgotten, but it is the true purpose of Memorial Day. And we're to spend it as a day remembering those who died in defense of this nation. These people may have seen our nation's promises and embraced them. And they were willing to die for them. Many of those were believers. They were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They loved their country, especially its unique Christian heritage and the freedom to practice and to share that faith, that which they believed. We all probably have relatives, relatives who have given their lives for this nation. I always remember my uncle, Uncle Ben, Benjamin Ingram, never met him, but he was the middle of three brothers. My father was the oldest, then Benjamin, and then Robert. And while my father didn't talk of Benjamin much, the youngest brother, Robert, did. And he would tell the story of, Rob, of Benjamin growing up as a young boy he had rheumatic fever. He had several other very difficult physical problems. But he survived. And he grew to be a strong young man. And when it came time for World War II, like his older brother, Richard, he joined the service. Younger brother, Robert, soon to follow. All three would serve. All three would serve. My father would serve in the Pacific Youngest brother, Robert, would serve in the European theater. And Benjamin, who proved to be a remarkable pilot, was retained stateside to be an instructor. And through most of the war, that's what he did. He was an instructor pilot. He married. But towards the end of the war, he wanted to serve in more than just an instructor role. And he petitioned for service with a combat squadron. And finally, it was granted. And so, in 1944, flying missions off a carrier near Japan, the aircraft that he was flying was hit and shot down, crashed in the South China Sea, and he was lost. Missing in action, never recovered his body. And today, whenever I have the opportunity to go to the Honolulu Memorial the National Memorial Cemetery, which is known as the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific in Honolulu, in what is called the Punch Bowl, Diamond Head. It's the, uh, I think we call them extinct craters that are there. But his name is found on one of the tablets of the missing. I think I have a picture of it here. Might as well start here with this one. The National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific in Honolulu, Hawaii. And over here are the memorial, the tablets of the missing. They're marble uh, columns that are standing there with the names of those who were lost, never recovered, missing in battle, and as we say, their resting place known only to God. And so he gave his life for his nation, as many others of that generation, previous generation and subsequent generation have done. So as we re remember them, 
we surely must remember with even greater love and appreciation the one who made the greatest sacrifice of all, the sacrifice that was anticipated by the sacrifices of the Old Testament, which we are told in Hebrews verse 2, Hebrews 12 verse 2, the following verse to the one I just read, says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finish of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so our Lord Jesus Christ is the highest and, of course, the ultimate example of sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving of one's life. But this morning, with that brief background, we're going to go to one other passage. I want to observe Memorial Day in America. And it's appropriate that we have monuments. And I'm as guilty of others. Why do we have monuments? Why do we have monuments? So we'll remember. So that we will observe the monuments and remember. But so often, we forget the monuments. We ignore the monuments. We're too busy for the monuments. And then, very often, forget the reason for the monuments. They're there for a reason. But if we don't visit them, we probably will not remember. And so it's important for us to set aside these days, Memorial Day. Go to the cemeteries. Go to the parks. Go to the malls. Wherever you might find some of these memorials. And remember. Try to remember why they're there. They were erected for a purpose. In essence, that's why we have grave markers. When someone dies, why don't we just stick them in the ground somewhere and forget? It's because we don't want to forget. And we have the gravestone, the marker. Now, some are buried at sea. And some are lost at sea. But very often, even those, like the tablets the memorial tablets here, they're still, their names are recorded and we remember them. And that's a biblical principle. Let's turn to Joshua 4. It's appropriate that we have monuments to remember our history and those who have given their lives. Let's go to Joshua 4, a passage that we've studied. And I'm just going to use this as an example the Word of God establishes memorials. And one of them we find here in Joshua 4, verses 1 through 9. The memorial stones. Joshua is bringing the children of Israel across the Jordan River. They have been prepared on the east side of the Jordan by Moses. Deuteronomy is the preparation phase for Israel. And then Moses dies. Joshua is told, get up. Moses is dead. Move on from Moses. I, have, I will continue to provide. And one of his provisions was going to be how they crossed the Jordan. How will we cross the Jordan? How can we get across the Jordan? We don't have a bridge. We don't have boats. We've got millions of people. The Jordan back then was wide. And to make it even more significant, the Lord brings them there at flood stage. Why not arrive during a drought when they could probably walk across, maybe water only up to their knees or their waist or something like that? No, let's bring them at flood stage. Let's make this a real challenge. A real challenge for man. No challenge for God. And so as they're crossing, verse 1, And it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan, 
that the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one man from every tribe and command them saying, take for yourself 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan from the place where the priest's feet stood. The priests were the ones that led them. And when they were a mile from this flooding Jordan, the Lord didn't part the water. So everybody could say, boy, look at that. You can get up there and it's, the waters are parted. All we have to do is just walk through here. No. Walk right up to the edge. Still flooded. What kind of faith is it going to take for us to get into our tribes, get in formation and prepare to cross? How are we going to cross this? Dad? We're going to swim? No. The Ark of the Covenant goes before them. And what does that represent? It represents the presence of God. God goes before them. And as the priest's feet are just about ready to touch the water, the waters part. And that first priest doesn't sink up to his knee in mud. It's dry. They cross on dry ground. Now that we've crossed, took them quite a while to get millions of people across. But once they cross, Joshua says, those 12 men I've selected, go back out into the river and select 12 stones. These were probably pretty big, husky, strong men. Went out, grabbed the biggest stone they could find and brought it back to the western shore. They're going to place these stones on the western shore. You shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, cross over before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan. And each one of you take, take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign. The word sign there is often also used for the word miracle in the Old Testament. But it's a sign, not something that's just going to be your normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill event being represented here. It's something special. Something truly extraordinary happened here. It may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean? Mom? Dad, what do these stones mean? Why are they here? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. And these stones shall be a memorial to the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so, just as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones from the midst of the Jordan, as the Lord had spoken to Joshua according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them to the place where they would lodge and laid them down there. Then Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan. He also played, placed 12 in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priest who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood. And there, and they are there to this day. So, why the 12 stones? Why the memorial? Because... Israel was supposed to see those stones and say, these stones came from the middle of the Jordan. And we didn't swim out and then dive down and wrestle them to shore. It was dry. These stones were dry in the middle of the Jordan. And the Lord provided that dry ground. We must not forget. We must remember what the Lord has done for us. And that's the basis of memorials. We must not forget. We must remember. And so we have memorials. We have many memorials in this nation. But we need to go to them. We need to remember what they represent. What occurred? that caused the construction of those memorials. Just like 
in Joshua 4. What caused these 12 stones to be here? A remarkable, memorable, unforgettable act by the Lord Jesus Christ right here. And we need to remember those who have given their lives in service of this nation. We must not forget. Israel, of course, was given many, many ways to remember. The ritual of the Passover, we've discussed it many times, many times. Israel was not to forget the Lord, the one who had brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery, the most powerful nation of the world, Egypt. Nothing. Brushed aside by the Lord. They were to remember that. They were to remember not only the power, but the love and the provision of the Lord. But unfortunately, they would forget. Why? Well, maybe they didn't observe their memorials. Maybe they didn't observe their memorials. And we find ourselves in a parallel situation in that we have also been blessed by the Lord in being given this wonderful land and the freedom that goes with us, goes with it. Our freedom is based on the sacrifice of many Americans, many of them, men and women, who have fought for that freedom in many of America's conflicts and wars. At first, of course, we had to fight for our freedom in the wars of independence, both the original one and the one fought 1812 to 1814. Then subsequently, in other wars, more recently, World War I, World War II, the Korean War, Vietnam War, even more recently in the last couple decades, Desert Storm, Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraqi Freedom. No idea. Must have been something I said. In procuring... And defending our nation, many Americans have given their lives. And again, we simply must not forget. So Memorial Day, it's dedicated to their memories. And while it's not on in our program today, I'd like to read the proclamation and prayer for peace that was given on Memorial Day, May the 21st, 1987. It was in our program last year. This year we're using it for, again, Robert L. Howard. But this was given in 1987 by Ronald Reagan. And he said, during that proclamation and prayer for peace, any American who has ever listened to a bugler play taps, sound taps, the last salute, whether on a green and grassy hillside, a muddy field halfway around the world, or a lonely tarmac stateside, or anywhere freedom is cherished and defended, they know exactly why we set aside a special day each year to honor those who have died for our country and to pray for permanent peace. And that was also part of every Memorial Day declaration and proclamation. It was a proclamation for prayer. Why prayer? If we're such a secular nation, if we're just a bunch of atheists and deists, why would we pray? Deists don't believe that God acts in human history because we do. We have a rich spiritual heritage. We do so for the sons and daughters of our land who have perished in the cause of liberty, country, and peace. The cause that has caused Americans from generation to ge has called Americans from generation to generation. We do so for the nation that was home to these heroes and heroines, the nation that gave them their birthright of freedom. We do so for the, for the sacred trust they have left us to revere, defend, and preserve all that they have revered, defended, and preserved for us. We pray for peace and for the devotion and strength of soul to build it and to protect it always. We pray and we resolve to keep holy, set apart, to keep holy the memory of those who have died for our country and to make their cause inseparably our own. We pray and we promise so that one day taps will sound never again for the young 
and the brave and the good. And of course, we do pray for peace. We know that in this world, we will never have peace. But God provides peace for those nations who honor him. Or he provides it by way of defense of this nation. I'd like to take just a few minutes here to read part of an article that was written for the American Legion magazine. And it's called The Whole Earth as Their Tomb. And this is part of the memory of American war dead. Americans have shed their lives, shed their blood and given their lives throughout the world. And they were not just fighting for America, but they were truly fighting for freedom around the world. So as they gave their lives in defense of this nation, they were defending this nation on battlefields far from this nation. And it says, above Omaha Beach sits the Normandy American Cemetery, where many of those who fought their way ashore in World War II now rest. Normandy is one of 24 overseas U.S. military cemeteries and 25 memorials, monuments, and markers maintained by the American Battle Monuments Commission. The American Battle Monuments Commission. They, are, they all share the same purpose, to honor the fallen by commemorating the service, achievements, and sacrifice of our nation's armed forces, our war dead, missing in action and those who fought at their sides. This mission is as old as antiquity. In his history of the Peloponnesian War, Thucydides quoted Pericles in the funeral oration the Greek hero delivered after the first battle of the war. And he said, For heroes have the whole earth as their tomb, and in lands far from their own, where the column with its epitaph declares it, there is enshrined in every breast a record unwritten with no tablet to preserve it, except that of the heart. And so we are to remember, and there may very well be foreign tombstones that we'll never see, but we remember them, and that epitaph is inscribed in our hearts. Recognize the need for a federal agency to be responsible for honoring U.S. armed forces where they had served. Congress created the American Battlefield Battle Monuments Commission in 1923. President Harding appointed as its first chairman General John Blackjack Pershing, who had led the American Expeditionary Forces to victory in World War I. For 25 years until his death in 1948, Pershing made the American Battle Memorial Commission his life's work. He eloquently defined the commission's purpose when he promised that the United States government would perpetuate the memory of the, of the bravery and sacrifice of our men and women in uniform. Time, he wrote, will not dim the glory of their deeds. The overseas cemeteries, again, 24 in all, serve as a resting place for 124,917 U.S. war dead. 30,000 from World War I, 93,000 from World War II, 750 from the American, from the Mexican-American War, and another 94,000 U.S. servicemen and women who are missing in action or were lost or buried at sea during the World Wars, Korean War, Vietnam Wars. And they are commemorated on the tablets of the missing. Many of the dead are buried in cemeteries located on or near the battle-scarred fields they died liberating. In all cases, host countries provide the cemetery lands to the United States in perpetuity, free of charge or taxation. I'm glad the other nations are providing them. If it was our nation, we'd probably tax it. But I digress. They range in size from Flanders Field in Belgium, where 386 Americans who died in the closing weeks of World War I are buried, to the Manila American Cemetery, where 17,202 U.S. military and Filipino nationals who fought and died in that vast theater of the Pacific during World War II rest. Cambridge American Cemetery, uh, cemetery sits on land donated by the University of Cambridge in England, 
which served during World War II as a natural landing field for Allied bombers and fighters based in England. Its memorial, made of Portland stone, houses a small non-denominational chapel and a large map room. The outstanding feature of the room is its impressive 30 feet long and 18 feet high map, which shows the principal sea routes across the Atlantic and the types of naval and commercial craft that transported U.S. troops and supplies to Europe. The mosaic ceiling is a memorial to those who lost their lives while serving in the United States Army Air Forces in World War II, whose missions were so dangerous that their lifespan at the beginning of the war was measured in days. The ceiling depicts ghostly aircraft accompanied by angels making their final flight towards the altar. The poet Archibald MacLeish's young, younger brother, Kenneth, died in World War I when his plane was shot down over Belgium by a German fighter. In his poem, The Young Dead Soldiers Do Not Speak, MacLeish calls on the living to remember those who died in our war and gives significance to their lives by saying, We leave you our deaths. Give them their meaning. Kenneth MacLeish is, is buried in Plot B at Flanders Field American Cemetery. Brookwood American Cemetery is the only U.S. military cemetery of World War I in the British Isles. The names of 563 American soldiers and sailors who have no graves except the sea are inscribed in the walls of the chapel. Buried in many other cemeteries in France and in Italy and in uh, northern Africa are many, many more uh, Americans who died. Aircraft that were shot down, uh, ships that were sunk, and those who died, of course, on land. Amongst those, Joseph P. Kennedy, a uh, naval lieutenant, older brother of President John F. Kennedy. We also have Major General Major Glenn Miller, who was also lost over the channel. And there's many others. I could go on. I simply don't have the time right now. But all of those are being honored, remembered, and maintained by other nations who also uh, are thankful, grateful, and remember our dead. The, the uh, poem that is often read on Memorial Day, and I think it is still appropriate, is In Flanders Field by John McRae. It says, In Flanders Field, in Flanders Fields, the poppies blow, between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place and in the sky, the lark still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amidst the guns below. We are the dead, Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow. Loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders Field. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw. The torch be yours to hold it high. If ye break with faith with those who died, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders Field. And that was written by a doctor, a Canadian doctor, actually, who had just lost one of his very closest friends. And he was sitting in a field and he was watching the poppies that were blowing in that field. And he watched them as they were waving back and forth. Many years later, there was a response to that. And this poem we do have on the back of our of our bulletin or our little pamphlet that we have. And it was written in 1915 as a response to Colonel McRae's in Flanders Field. And it's entitled, We Shall Keep the Faith. And it says, Oh, you who sleep in Flanders Field, sleep sweet to rise anew. We caught the torch you threw and holding high we kept the faith with those who died. We cherish, too, the poppies red that grows on fields where valor led. It seems to signal to the skies that blood of heroes never die, but lends a luster to the red 
of the flowers that bloom above the dead in Flanders Field. And now the torch and poppy red were in honor of our dead. Fear not that ye have died for naught. We've learned the lessons that you taught in Flanders Field. And therefore, by wearing the poppy, we are remembering. We're remembering those. And hopefully saying that we have learned that lesson. We've learned that lesson. And we will not forget. I'd like to finish with a very quick review of the man honored in our program, Colonel Robert L. Howard. He served five tours, Vietnam, five tours, Colonel Robert L. Howard. He's the only soldier in our nation's history to be nominated for the Medal of Honor three times for three separate actions within a 13-month period. The first nomination was downgraded to the Distinguished Service Cross. The second nomination was downgraded to the Silver Star. The third nomination was downgraded to a second Distinguished Service Cross, but then later was upgraded to the Medal of Honor. He received a direct appointment from Master Sergeant to First Lieutenant in 1969 and was awarded the Medal of Honor by President Richard Nixon at the White House in 1971. His other awards, almost too, ne- uh, too numerous to mention, include the Distinguished Service Cross, uh, the Silver Star, uh, numerous uh, Bronze Stars, eight Purple Hearts, and he received his decoration for valor, the Medal of Honor, while serving as an NCO, a non-commissioned officer. He grew up in uh, Opelika, Alabama, and enlisted in the United States Army at age, nine, at age 17 in 1956. He retired as a full colonel in 1992 after 36 years of service. During Vietnam, he served in the United States Army Special Forces, Green Beret, and spent most of his time, most of his five tours, in the Military Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observation Group, later known as the Special Operations, Special Operations Group. It ran classified border, cross-border operations into Laos, Cambodia, and North Vietnam. So he was there five times. Many, many dangerous missions. Robert Howard is said to be our nation's most decorated soldier from Vietnam. He was the last Vietnam Special Forces Medal of Honor recipient, still on active duty when he retired in 1992. His citation reads, for conspicuous gallantry, and at the time he was a Sergeant First Class, for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity and risk in action at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty. First Lieutenant Howard, then Sergeant First Class, distinguished himself while serving as platoon sergeant of an American Vietnamese platoon, which was on a mission to rescue a mission a missing American soldier in enemy-controlled territory in the Republic of Vietnam. The platoon had left its helicopter landing zone and was moving out on its mission when it was attacked by an estimated two-company force. During the initial engagement, First Lieutenant Howard, again, remember, he's a specialist first class, was wounded and his weapon destroyed by a grenade explosion. Robert Howard saw his platoon leader had been wounded seriously and was exposed to fire. Although unable to walk and weaponless, Howard unhesitatingly crawled through a hail of fire to retrieve his wounded leader. As First Lieutenant Howard was administering administering first aid and removing the officer's equipment, an enemy bullet struck one of the ammunition pouches on the lieutenant's belt, detonating several magazines of ammunition. First Lieutenant Howard momentarily sought cover and then realized that he must rejoin the platoon, which had been disorganized by the enemy's attack. He again began dragging the seriously wounded officer towards the platoon area. Through his outstanding example of indomitable courage and bravery, First Lieutenant Howard was able to rally the platoon into an organized defense force. With complete disregard for his safety, First Lieutenant Howard crawled from position to position, administering first aid to the wounded, giving encouragement to the defenders, and directing their fire on the encircling enemy. For three and a half hours, 
First Lieutenant Howard's small force and supporting aircraft successfully repulsed enemy attacks and finally were in sufficient control to permit the landing of rescue helicopters. First Lieutenant Howard personally supervised the loading of his men and did not leave the bullet-swept landing zone until all were aboard safely. First Lieutenant Howard's gallantry in action, his complete devotion to the welfare of his men at the risk of his life, were in keeping with the highest traditions of the military service and reflect great credit on himself, his unit, and the United States Army. And so today as we conclude our memorial service, Memorial Day service, again, we need to keep the faith. Many men and women have given their lives so that we might enjoy the freedom that we have today. And of course, on Memorial Day, there are many things to do. Many things to do. And we occupy ourselves with those many things. But Memorial Day is for remembering. It's not that we can't do other things, but we need to take the time to remember. Hopefully, go to the monuments. Read the names. Remember them. Remember their families. Remember what they have done. Keep the faith. I think that's important. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the freedom that we have in this nation. We're thankful for Memorial Day. Help us to remember there is a reason for monuments. Help us to keep the faith of those who have given their lives so that we might live in freedom. We are certainly thankful for your greatest gift, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his life that we might have spiritual freedom. Help us, Father, to understand that that is an example, a wonderful example. And we can see the analogy in those who give their lives for us in the defense of this nation. Help us to never forget. Help us to use Memorial Day appropriately. Help us to keep the faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.